0: Uh, Welcome to a new episode of Esports Boom, your almost weekly esports business podcast. My name is Maurice Eisenman, um, and I'm joined by a good friend, and for the first time on the podcast, uh, Chris Bliven, who is Director of Commercial Partnerships and Esports at Lagardeer Sports uh, here in New York. Chris, how are
1: you? Good. How are you doing, Moshe? Thanks so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. So a lot of, uh, you know, last week, unfortunately, we're out um, but just for our audience to know, uh, obviously this week is a great episode, but then the week after and the week after that, I've already have some guests planned in. So um, so don't be afraid uh, that we had a little break. Uh, we're right back into it over the next few weeks. So, um, Chris, let's go right into it. So our first story um, is not directly tied to esports specifically, but the effects will be so big, I believe that it will have effects on our ecosystem as a whole, so Tencent reportedly prepares to um, launch uh, their WeGame PC distribution platform globally, uh, so uh, WeGame is the most popular gaming distribution platform in China, consider it the Steam of China. Um, so. Last month, Valve announced that it had planned uh, to la- to launch together with Perfect World in China. Perfect World is WeGame's biggest competitor, um, so this is really interesting. Um, as we get more and more into it, before I give you the mic on on what you think, I think it's interesting to note two things. One, Tencent owns uh, a stake or a full uh, uh, part. Of a lot of large gaming uh, publishers, so they fully own Riot. They own parts of Activision Blizzard. Uh, they own a large chunk of Epic Games, a lar- a decent chunk of uh, Bluehole Studios, the publisher of PUBG. So that's very interesting, and I know you have some thoughts on that. But also, secondly, reportedly Google is also planning on on uh, having kind of a Netflix model for video games. Discord is pro- is is starting to uh, work on their gaming, uh, distribution platform. So, um, it's going to be an interesting few years, uh, specifically for steam. So Chris, what do you think?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I think, you know, from a macro perspective, um, the inclusion of kind of these bigger Chinese companies entering into the U S or global markets, such as Alibaba, even, um, but obviously Tencent being such a massive player in the gaming space, it's going to be interesting, right? You know, I've been seeing some stats recently about how gaming is bigger than the music and film industry mm-hmm. combined. And so with such money, and I think, you know, you know, it's easy for us here to kind of, you know, I think Fortnite has really made, you know, gaming just more mainstream and part of our culture as a whole, where that kind of comes in is now you're starting to see the bigger players like Google, right? Um, obviously, they have Android and they have their own gaming platform where you can get games. Mm-hmm. They're going to have so much data on this uh, that they're going to obviously notice things like the gaming market increasing. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Apple coming in and trying Absolutely. to kind of create some sort of – Similar type platform, but, you know, where I think um, Tencent's, where you kind of alluded to it earlier, which is Tencent's investment in some of the largest global games, let alone esports, gives them a really interesting um, leverage point on how to control not only the Chinese market, but then the big gaming publishers that are international, how do they... Um, kind of enter into foreign markets like the U.S. Mm-hmm. or like Europe. Uh, you mentioned Activision Blizzard. You know they. Some of the bigger publishers have their own. Like you know you've got Battle.net, mm-hmm. and um, it, it'll, I'll be really curious to see how do some of the larger publishers try and control that IP. You know I know Valve owns Steam, but they're so open source that they for whatever reason have chosen not to try and control those rights, and so. I think where you'll start to see is Tencent trying to be more of that closed source and saying, we invested X amount in you to gain that exclusivity in distribution rights so that they can monetize that on a global um, platform.
0: Yeah. So you're alluding to this in your last sentence, but um, especially listeners of the show who have been listening for a while, um, will probably what I'm about to say, I'm kind of a broken record but I really love Tencent. Um, But Tencent has a kind of huge ace what they have is they basically run distribution in china so whenever a new publisher you know let's say a blue hole or an epic games wants to get into china um, they have to go through tencent and a lot of times that's when you see tencent buy a stake in the company usually they get released in china and then a few months later you know you get an announcement that tencent owns a stake of the company that's not (laughs) how that works yeah that's not a coincidence um, so especially as China becomes a larger market for uh, game publishers, I can imagine Tencent to gain more and more a foothold in all relevant publishers. Uh, and that obviously is really interesting from a Chinese market perspective. But let's say a year or two from now, Wii game ha- gains a foothold in the US and in Europe as well. Well, now all of a sudden, um, Tencent can pull some of its muscle. And when Bluehole decides to release a new game, they might have to go exclusive um, on Wii game uh, on PC uh, for a while. So that'll be a really interesting uh, development
1: to follow. Um, Yeah, I think just kind of step in is if Tencent is operating kind of almost as a gatekeeper to the China market, Mm -hmm. which they're able to kind of do at the moment, um, that's almost, you know, some estimates have it China... Alone is almost two thirds of the gaming market. With how mm-hmm. large their population is, and so from a publisher's perspective, you know, getting into that market is critical as you're trying to grow revenues. And so, if Tencent's going to be that gatekeeper and then demand exclusivity internationally to the other markets, you know, they're building up a nice little wall that's going to be, I think, very difficult for the steams of the world or. You know, if Google's going to be creating one, um, or you know, if Apple or whoever it might be, they're going to be creating this infrastructure. That's where there's already so many members that are already a part of their platform. That's going to be hard to overcome and really hard to infiltrate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is one of those stories that you know we can theorize about this for hours. <laughs> But but let's be real. This is just um, the beginning, and uh, Tencent, you know, really has to go into it more. Uh, and but obviously, we will follow this story closely on the podcast. The second story is always pretty interesting. It's always interesting when a large um, a large entity in traditional sports and in the traditional finance world releases a report on esports. Um, so Goldman Sachs uh, just released a report. Where they see that esports revenue uh, will grow to $2.96 billion, so almost $3 billion by 2022. So um, they've published a comprehensive report on the esports industry. Um, they project annual revenue to grow from six, $655 million in 2017 to close to $3 billion uh, in 2022. That projection comes largely on the back of massive growth. Uh, Potential the company sees in the eSports population. Um, So just, you know, we'll go through each of these kind of bullet points closely, but just to give the listeners some more information about the report. So according to the report, the global gamer population in 2018 is 2.2 billion uh, out of a total online population of Um, 3.6. eSports viewership is only about 5% of uh, the online population today. Um, media rights are currently account for 14% of esports revenue sponsorship makes up 38% so Goldman Sachs expense sponsorship to continue to grow but sees a lot of potential in media rights um, projecting category to eventually reach 40% of total revenue very similar to that of traditional sports so let's go point by point with this so first seeing the revenue grow from 655 million in 2017 to close to three billion dollars in 2022, that's close to five times as much. Right, that's massive. So, yeah. so what do you think of this of this uh, daring statement?
1: Yeah, I think you know it's one of these things where a number of financial institutions, whether it be um, Deloitte or whether it be you know KPMG or a number of different groups, have come out now and had their input on how big the market is going to get to. Um, and every time I see a number, it scares me because I feel like there's a little bit of cold water that needs to be splashed on the industry. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, eSports is here to stay. I I see the value, obviously, by the fact that I'm trying to work in the industry. Um, I feel like these numbers come a bit from a a good place, but a misunderstood place, right? Mm -hmm. And so when they say the gaming market... um, Obviously, it talks more about esports specifically, but I think that their main thing, which is a market that hasn't even really been developed yet, and maybe they're counting too much on it, but is the, uh, the mobile gaming. And mm-hmm. so I went through and read the report where they view that you know the cell phone, which to its credit has truly made everyone a gamer in Absolutely. some way, shape, or form, and so everyone's playing games online. However, at this point, we there hasn't been this mass translation of gaming on your mobile phone and then participating or watching eSports. Yes. Um, Now, do I think that that is an area that will be growing? I think that, you know, right now, Tencent and China are spending a massive amount of money and time on figuring that out. Like how to translate mobile games into eSports.
0: And with success also.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, I see nearly $3 billion as you mentioned, almost five x um, growth in roughly six years. That would be essentially growing two hundred percent a year. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, that's you know a bit aggressive and unrealistic. I do I do think you know you know one of my podcasts uh, that I always listen to is the Bill Simmons podcast, mm-hmm. and he had a while back a kind of a revelation about he seems to think that everything lags about five years. And okay. so his, his analogy was around, he started joining the podcast, he created a podcast in like 2007, and he didn't even start to see money in podcasts until th- about 2012. Um, I think that esports really started to become something that started joining people's top of mind. You know, the Vice came out with their big video around 2015, mm-hmm. which I know for some is very late to some of their very early careers. But for the, I think the bulk of general population's understanding and acceptance of esports as a legitimate topic yeah. and worth investigating um, started around 2015. And so I would expect, you know, most of the money, whether it be meteorites, whether it be ticketed events, whether it be sponsorships and advertising, whatever it might be, um, I wouldn't expect really those dollars to start really coming in until about 2020. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you know we've seen an initial interest level that's you know you got Goldman Sachs coming out with reports and you know be it be it far from me you know with to discredit or disagree with the incredibly bright people who understand the entire full marketplace at Goldman Sachs. Um, But I would be, I'd be reserved in seeing that number and then all of a sudden getting unbelievably excited that, you know, esports is going to be this cash cow.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly that, right? So, so do I think esports could potentially reach $3 billion or close to $3 billion in 2022? Maybe. Right. What I'm afraid of is the market now looking at esports and expecting this to become the case, uh, especially when we're looking at the investment field. They'll um, because investments at the end of the day are loans that eventually have to cash out on. So they expect returns. So if investors go into investing into esports startups, esports properties, expecting these six x returns um, or five x returns in six years. Um, and they get hugely disappointed, and it's only two X, which is amazing by right. any standard. Yeah. Um, their investment, you know, is they lose on their investments because they they might have overpaid because they expected the uh, investment to pay off tremendously in the future. So I'm very hesitant of the effects that these type of um, reports can have. One of the things that I did like, and this is the second point of that the bullet point, is the fact that. I like the fact that they kind of show that the global gamer population is 2.2 billion. I don't see too much wrong with that. I think gamer in this case is casual. Um, Out of 3.6 plus uh, online population, uh, esports viewership only account for 5% of the total online population today. Um, Even among active gamers, the esports industry appears to be far from saturated. So I think there, and, and please let me know what you think, but I think that their kind of idea is, this is, you know, the eSports market is such a, it's a niche market in the gaming audience. The gaming audience is going to grow. But also, they kind of are like, yeah, if more and more of these casual gamers are going to become eSports fans. So what do you think? Do you think that's that's going to be true is the way realistic? they see right. it? Or, or not? Yeah, is it realistic?
1: I think... So this is where, and I know we'll get to it, but why I chose to get into eSports mm-hmm. is a bit because I did view eSports as the first place where the entertainment and content lived organically and originally digital. Mm-hmm. And since, as you from the macro perspective, you're seeing so many of the younger generation only consuming content digitally, mm-hmm. That's why I think eSports isn't just like online poker or like the X Games where it was a bit of a fad, it blew up for a minute and then has since receded from the spotlight. Why I view eSports actually as having this long-term potential and opportunity and why I think it's valuable and worth the conversations and the investments or whatever it might be that we're having. Um, I do think it's a little bit naive, though, for us to assume that playing a game is going to equate to viewing the game Mm -hmm. i have played a number of games i still do play a couple of games um but i'm not always going to be going and looking to esports um as my form of entertainment Mm -hmm. and i think that you know if that five percent grows i don't know what number that they needed that five percent to grow to in order to reach their three billion Um, I think it'd be really interesting to know that Mm -hmm. because I think that's a fundamental piece, you know, even if it stays at 5%, right? The global population and the amount of people who have access to internet and to games is going to be increasing. Therefore, if it just stays at 5%, that number is going to automatically become bigger. And so I think, I think that it is unrealistic for that number to get too large. Um, again can't really comment too much about because i'm not sure where the percentage they needed that to be at to reach the three billion um but i would say that you will get the more casual viewers watching things like fortnite now i am not saying though that fortnite viewership of ninja is esports right to me that's a whole different that is just you know Content creation, that's influencer marketing. Mm-hmm. And I do think it needs there needs to be a very clear distinction, which I know we understand. Yeah. Um, but I'm not so sure sometimes the general audience doesn't um, fully understand that those are very separate yeah. things. And I don't know if Goldman Sachs went in and counted that as considered esports or not.
0: So let me tell you an anecdote. So I don't know about Goldman Sachs. And to be fair, I'll give them the credit and say that they probably understand that distinction. But there was a smaller research company that, um, through a mutual friend that I had with uh, their, their chief research officer, we got introduced because they did a report on eSports. So they asked me to go through that report. And they said, you know, I'll just give an example, you know, 60% of youth uh, consumes eSports content. And I asked them, you know, you say this, but what do you define as eSports content? And they said, you know, well, you know, like PewDiePie and and um, you know all the and like Ninja <laughs> or whatever, and and I was like, well, you know, it's important to make that distinction, and that's why I'm telling this anecdote also for the audience that might not be familiar to make a distinction between kind of gaming video content, which a lot of people consume, and esports content, like the competitive video gaming, particularly you know that type of content, which is a lot more niche, uh, yet it's growing obviously. Talking about content, um, so the last point um, is media rights currently accounts for 40% of esports revenue while sponsorship makes up 38%. So sponsorships, they are assuming to grow, just not in percentage-wise as much. Uh, But they think that media rights will, and I think this is by 2022, reach 40% of total revenue. Uh, And then, just to give an example, this is kind of similar to that of traditional sports. So... What do you think? Is this something you expect uh, to hit?
1: Yes. That I strongly agree with. Mm -hmm. And I think that the media um, competition is going to be heating up. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously Twitch right now, by far the best um, location to consume Mm -hmm. and engage in the community. And I think that's a really key word about Twitch is that it's, the best and biggest community for to watch and consume esports or gaming related content, um, and I think that, but you're gonna have a number of challengers. You've seen Twitter come out and try and create their own esports content. Mm-hmm. You've seen Facebook investing heavily with the ESL guys to have their own content, um, and I think there's gonna be a number of different media co- groups. That either have OTT platforms that can just have it on their thing, Um, you know. I think that there does need to be some sort of integration. I, I could see some group such as like YouTube maybe go out and buying Discord, right, Mm -hmm. and integrating Discord into YouTube to really create that full the community that is already gaming endemic Mm -hmm. with the chat, and then all of a sudden having the um, live streaming or content, you know, platform to rival something like Twitch, um, but I do see, you know, and obviously with increased competition comes increased prices. Yes. Um, and that's going to feed off itself. I think globally, you're seeing media rights across all entertainment as um, increasing. Yeah. And so I think that that's esports as the n- new frontier of this kind of live content you're only gonna see the same thing happen there
0: okay so um, I guess we had there had to be a time where we disagreed so Good. Um, I, 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 you know, I I I, in, you know just because I think this is an interesting discussion for our audience yeah. It's so I, I think the comparison between traditional sports and eSports unfortunately there's some ways where obviously that touches right there's um, there are ways how you can create value if we look at traditional sports that we can create in eSports as well some of it will translate, some of it won't. Some of it yet remains to be seen. For instance, franchising, it yet remains to be seen how 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 strong that will translate in esports. So far, the signs are good. What um, I think when we're looking at media rights, there, there, there are a few different issues I have here and why media rights won't grow as much. By far, the biggest is um, the fact that esports games are cyclical. So, in esports, like an NBA... Um, grows because it is one game and one league that's slowly growing with their audience, right? They, they, are, they are gaining, you know, they have 100 million fans. Now, next year, they have 105 million. So, and, and so more and more people are interested in consuming that content, and the market is also hungry for that type of content. What makes esports different is the fact that, um, let's say Fortnite is now really popular. Fortnite decides to have a franchise league. They can ask for a lot of money for two years, but maybe three years from now, their game isn't relevant anymore. So so they can never reach to the point where they can continue to grow, continue to build. Um, there are some exceptions in esports. I don't think there are as many as traditional sports. So while I hope to be wrong, I do think that that makes it slightly different. The second issue is they, can, they say it's going to be 40%. I actually think that rather, and, and rather than seeing um, these as the only revenue options, I actually think that in the future we'll see new categories open. So we'll see categories open that are very unique to esports, that will make a chunk of... That will be very relevant. I'll give an example, but there can be many, like in-game sales. If publishers become more and more active on working with teams, in-game sales might become a, a huge chunk. Of, uh, of, of a team's revenue and that might be something that right now isn't relevant at all um, so you have any, any thoughts on what, what I just said
1: yeah no I think you you make a well thought out argument right I do you know the reason why the NBA to your point can kind of create a content bidding war is because they have a product that everyone knows and that everyone's interested in um, and then you have the Turners, the TNTs, the ESPNs, all bidding for the same right to show that content so that way people will tune in. Um, and it is kind of where, like, you get in trouble a lot when people, like, these reports talk about esports revenue. Well, it's like, yeah, so esports revenue, $3 billion, Um, But how much of that is actually, like, Activision Blizzard, Blizzard's? Yeah, Chunk of that pie, and then of that chunk, how much of that is just Overwatch, or mm-hmm. how much of it is Hearthstone um, versus Riot, and all those things? I do think, though, where you, what you're already beginning to see, though, is groups like ESPN now own, in ESPN Plus owning the rights to riots mm-hmm. in ALCS. Um, I don't. I don't know. You know, we all know that BAM paid approximately three hundred million dollars for those rights.
0: Yeah, those, those rights are. They, they've backtracked on that.
1: Right, and so I don't know though how much ESPN paid for those rights, but it is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to make sure that it's. I think that media rights isn't exclusively to publishers, mm-hmm. right? It also does apply to the groups like ESL. Um, the event organizers yeah. and so as those kind of things happen and it is global and it, so mm-hmm. you, you what you are starting to see a lot of rights getting paid internationally i think to start having the content i do think that there's like power players like disney who mm-hmm. haven't quite started to invest i know that espn's owned by disney yeah. but i think disney as a whole could even come in around like i don't know something as fun as like splatoon mm-hmm. and maybe create some sort of Option that where they just want to own everything that Nintendo's doing. Um, And then the third piece is I also think media rights doesn't necessarily just limit itself to publishers or even event organizers, but now you can start to how do you monetize the teams Mm -hmm. or the individual players and their rights to start creating media content that then can be distributed? You're seeing, you know, what Netflix just did with Riot around their whole. behind the scenes, yeah, right? Yeah, like explained, like that Explained Explain, yeah. exactly. And so I do think that you'll start to see more media companies, to your point, traditional or otherwise, kind of coming in and creating custom content mm-hmm. that maybe Goldman is wrapping up into that media right mm-hmm. distribution. Um, I know right now that, you know, even here at Lagadere, we're trying to do and look to create some really interesting media content that we could either go out and sell or... Um, Work with you know the different rights holders. So to your point, yes, is it going to be a challenge to get to forty percent of all um, revenues? Yeah, I think that that's a very fair thing to say, and I, I like your point about the competition and the you know the consistency that the NFL, the NBA, the MLS, MLB, and then you know the consistency that they of their product allows for them to create significantly more revenue generation. Um, But I do think it will increase above fourteen percent. Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: and 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 meteorites will grow. Don't get me wrong. Exactly. I just. I I get it. Yeah, it's just the 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 direct connection to traditional sports and looking at that and saying it's gonna go there. You know, the our industries are different, but talking about the growth of our industry, when you read about this topic, you said, okay, I have something to say about this. So, um, just for our audience, Counter Strike, Hmm. uh, Professional Players Association, the CSPPA. Um, had some big announcements um, They had kind of their official large announcement, but around 90 top players have joined the the CSPPA um, Seven players have agreed to form the association board and go public that list can be found online. It's a pretty Known there are a lot of known players a very global list um, The CSPPA was officially set up earlier this year by veteran eSports personality uh, Sir Scoot Scott Smith in collaboration with an organization called Danish Elite Athletes Association, they are kind of a traditional sports player association. They help a lot of Danish athletes um, and a group of players uh, with Andreas Hjulseth, uh, which is also known as XYP9X, uh, at the helm. And it's been increasing its membership count since then. So they were kind of very be- in stealth mode until last week when they announced that they, oh, they have 90 top players that have that have signed up on this, uh, and they have. These seven players who will now form a board. Um, So I know you have a traditional sports background, so this probably is is very interesting to you, uh, and you have some thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, for me, the question is always, why hasn't this been happening earlier? Mm -hmm. Right? So why haven't you seen a players association for the Overwatch League? Why haven't we seen it? You know, I know you mentioned, you know, prior to the podcast, um, but it's true, right? Riot has created their own player association, mm-hmm. but it's not independent. No. And, you know, across Counter-Strike, finally this is happening, but what's taken so long? Or mm-hmm. the NBA 2K League, right? They have their NBA player association, but there isn't necessarily a player association associated with their 2K League. Yeah. And so, for me, it's a great sign of the maturation of esports as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I think that this will beginning, I think a lot of times some of the hard part is just how young these kids are when they're entering into becoming a professional gamer. And so not to say that they're being taken advantage of, Mm -hmm. but they don't know all the rights and they don't have the experience of how to become a professional athlete and they're not being advised. Um, I know a bunch of guys over at Catalyst are doing you know, great work on what they're doing yep. from a, trying to help that infrastructure grow. But to me, it's been something that has been missed in, you know, to make sure that the players are being properly represented when it comes to contracts and their own rights. Um, I think that over the next two to three years, you're really going to begin to see a change in how teams are treating the athletes in um, their rights. I know right now, you know, when a player signs up to be on a team of something like Riot or something like um, Overwatch, mm-hmm. the team owns all their rights. Yep. And while that is great for perhaps, let's just say, even 80% of the players there, because maybe their followings or whatever aren't as valuable, you'll start to see the couple guys who have the massive followings. The people like, you know, Ninja, but maybe not just influencers, the true people on the teams playing in the big competitions. You'll start to see them wise up, I believe, and start to demand their own rights, which I think will make, there will become an inflection point, in my opinion, probably mm-hmm. over the next two to three years, where you're going to have to just start take a, managing this.
0: Yeah, so... You know, I kind of want to outline this you know most of this but I want to outline this for our audience so I think there are a few issues here um, one and let's get this right off the boat is how much do the players care Unfortunately a lot of them do not um, and, and this is I'm not hearing this for myself you can list there, there are plenty of interviews that for instance you know great lawyers in our industry like Ryan Morrison have said and, and Bryce you know, from catalyst they are kind of, although Bryson more on the team side, right. we're just saying like, you know, like they, the players, all they care about at the end of the day is how much money am I getting from this team? So they're going to go and they just want their salary to be increased. They don't see kind of a long-term vision or they don't even listen to their managers and to their lawyers. Um, when they get things like, maybe you want to ask for a little less money, but you want to have, um, own a large part of your rights because we can make a lot more money on the back end by having those rights. Um, players don't really understand that. The good thing is that is changing. Um, it's now very common for players to have a lawyer. Um, a few years ago, that wasn't the case. Um, franchise leagues like the OWL and the NALCS are giving players more power. Because now all of a sudden they're part of a franchise team. So there's only a limited pool of teams that they can get from. Uh, And now they have the power to start a franchise league. It took so long for Counter-Strike because it's an open system. So um, because there's not a franchise system, you're not negotiating versus one entity, meaning the league you're negotiating against all teams at the same time. So it's very right. tough to have a, 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 a players'
1: association. And they just want to get paid.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so it's very tough to get together because you're very nervous. Whereas if you're negotiating against a league, and there's only one league, you can do things, you know, like player strikes and stuff like that. And there are very uh, real ways in which you can fight against the league. Um, so, But to just go on to your point... This is great news. I wish this CSPPA nothing but success, and I hope this is a good sign of where the league is to come, specifically when we're talking about franchise leagues, right? Um, Absolutely. So let's, let's go to our last story. Um, we'll go through this one relatively quickly because it's not that big of a story, um, but then we'll go into your background. So McLaren, um, the... Launched a Sh- Shadow Project esports series, so they're launching a sequel. Last year they had the world's fastest gamer tournament, and now it's called Shadow Project. So the winner will earn a spot on McLaren's new esports racing team. Last year uh, the partners were Logitech and Sparkle Gaming. They will return again, uh, and they have HTC Vive and Dell's Alienware as their partners uh last year Mclaren's world's fastest gamer was run by a different or some a third party this time they're doing it themselves um so they're they're seeing success and and they wanna you know do it again uh, really interesting kind of a a a different category with racing games in general and the way they're approaching it um you know what do you make of this story
1: yeah so I think Last year, when they were only on one platform, they roughly got about 30,000 entrants, Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty phenomenal, given how uh, popular or not popular the game is. So for them to kind of make it much more open source will obviously only increase their participation. Um, I would imagine, for McLaren, this is widely a marketing play, right? Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, obviously it's a very high-end luxury car, but esports is, you know, a pretty sophisticated. A lot of the people who play or involved in esports come from computer in, computer engineering, computer science, some level of a career that usually makes you a little bit more, more than not, highly educated with mm-hmm. more expendable income. Yes. Um, so for them, I think it's a great opportunity for them to get more people interested in racing. I do think, just, I mean. Um, You've seen the decline of the NASCAR yeah. Um, viewing viewership numbers and participation numbers. I would imagine for McLaren, you know, Zach Brown's not a dumb person. He's very smart. And for him to be able to try and tap into a broader group of people trying to play the game and who are, are a a subset of people who are already interested in racing because they're playing racing games, mm-hmm. you know, I think is really smart of them just from the pure branding play and to get more and more people interested in their brand in particular um and then on top of that if they, if they end up finding some whiz kid uh who is better than anyone and really can do the agility or whatever it takes to become one of these racers then better off for it um, yeah. but to your point you know reinvesting in it Seems like a great product that they had a great success with the first year. And, you know, I look forward to kind of seeing their continued success. And then I also, you know, would be curious to see if it translates to other sporting products. i do not not yeah. sure it does, but curious about it.
0: I'm just, you know, you hit most of the things I wanted to hit on. I'm just happy to see that there, that it was a success last time. So that it was so much so a success, they're doing it again. Because that showed that a type of, of a part of the esports industry that, to be fair, I didn't really have my eyes on, uh, <laughs> has success. And yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with that. Um, so enough about the news of the last two weeks. Let's focus on on you. So uh, for our new listeners, the second half of our of the podcast, you know, we just... Or we just go and find out what the story is of of our guest. Um, so, like many of our guests, um, you made the switch over to esports um, a while ago, but it, it, originally you, that wasn't uh, your background. So, what is your background? You know, yeah. how, and how did you end up you know running esports for Lagardere like here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, um, so you know, you hit it right. I didn't. Seek out thinking I was going to be working in esports a number of years ago. Esports kind of found me. So I uh, I went to the University of Rochester for undergrad, mm-hmm. majored in biomedical engineering, thinking I might go into being some sort of ophthalmologist of some sort. Okay. Um, found out very quickly that I was not cut out to be an ophthalmologist, um, and so went and worked in uh, the actual this for a startup company out of Albuquerque, New Mexico for three years doing um running our their optics lab and so ended up not enjoying that as much as i was hoping i would um also albuquerque new mexico when you're fresh out of undergrad as a young professional is not the most exciting Mm -hmm. city love albuquerque new mexico for a number of reasons but uh, so i was looking for a change i went back and applied to duke um, and went to their masters of engineering program, which is a bit of an accelerated MBA for mm-hmm. people with an engineering background. And first class I had there was a marketing strategy class. And immediately I fell in love with marketing strategy. Um, to me that's where my true passion lies, is in how do you figure out how to do cool things for brands, or how do you find you know the white space for brands um, to to grow and leverage their authenticity or their who they are to provide value to people. So, after a year at Duke, I went to as an intern to Lagardère. Um, I was connected to Kern Egan who was kind enough to give me the opportunity to go to Dallas and work under their brand consulting division. And so being in brand consulting as an intern at the age of 26 almost 27 was quite humbling from you know having a masters degree and so my question to myself was how do you become an expert in something or how do you you know sit at the table with people who you have no right sitting at the table with at mm-hmm. that point um i could you know as i played soccer my whole life um so i thought about possibly soccer but or becoming an expert in soccer but the reality is there are so many people who have worked in soccer and who will know more about soccer than me than I could ever catch up to in the amount of time that I was hoping to yeah. become an expert in. Um, so right at the beginning, um, one of my mentors and guy I was working for at the time, Ryan Peck, we were working on this account called Tyrac.com, which is this uh, unbelievable business, but they are literally a digital tire distributors. So you go online, you buy tires. So usually only the people that are shopping on this website are people who know exactly what kind of tires they are, they want, and it's not like a last minute thing. Um, But they buy their tires online. And so being a digital only platform, we were looking for new partnership and sponsorship opportunities that would make a lot of sense for them. Um, And so... Nobody at Lagadere, this was back in 2015, nobody at Lagadere knew anything about esports, but it was starting to enter into the news every so often. They would get painted like once a week or so. Mm-hmm. You'd see something come up. Um, and so my boss at the time, Ryan Peck, was like, go learn about esports. Come back, let me know everything you know about it, and let's see if it works mm-hmm. uh, for, t- for Tire Rack. And so I was, you know, I think, you know, where this goes with for so many people is it's a bit of luck, right, and then a bit of hard work and determination to make yeah. it happen. And so I became very quickly the only person at Lagadere in the U.S. who knew anything about eSports and so, you know, became the de facto subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I for sure did not foresee it blowing up in the mm-hmm. way that it did has since 2015, you know, Two years ago, there was no Overwatch League. Two years ago, there was no NALCS. Um, No
0: NALCS franchise league. Franchise league, right, right, right,
1: right. yes. Um, And so, it, you know, I was very lucky to become a subject matter expert on an emerging market. Mm -hmm. And so, since then, I've been able to kind of navigate the space. I think in parallel, our German office was also exploring this space and started making investments in some esports teams such as the Unicorns of Love was our very first partnership um, with a team to do their marketing and sales rights. And so it kind of like in parallel without really knowing it, our German office and we here in the U.S. were starting to explore this space. And with the investment in the uh, Unicorns of Love, it really became tangible. And so then from that investment um, to represent them over there and as they would continue to do a lot more work, I was able to build up the business case as to why we should kind of create what we now have, which is this business unit that focuses on esports. And so, where we are today is you know, we have esports as an initiative and a priority here in the US. Um, as I say, you know, my job is to try and drive revenue through the lens of esports. Mm-hmm. So, we have core business units that is what we were f- funded on, which is, you know, brand consulting. Um, experiential marketing in our activation group, media rights, we have talent representation, and then we run and operate a number of events. So how do we leverage all of those expertises to apply them to Mm esports? And so that's kind of, you know, I absolutely kind of fell into it by chance and luck, but I found it, as I mentioned earlier, for me it was more than just an opportunity. I also identified, you know, the shift in consumption behavior and that's why I kind of settled on it as not just an opportunity, but a legitimate thing to put a, the, a lot of time and energy into.
0: So you mentioned the work Legardier is doing in esports in Germany, but just focusing on kind of your day-to-day, yep. what are some of the projects you have worked on, you are working on?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I would say we have a roster of clients that we uh, – clients – from our brand consulting group, which has been rebranded as Air Plus. Mm-hmm. So we advise all of our clients on anything that um, is involved with sports and entertainment. Um, obviously, eSports is becoming this burgeoning new topic. We've worked with a number of the brands there um, in helping them evaluate and look for opportunities in eSports. Um, Bridgestone Tire most recently came on and was a partner for the NHL's first e gaming when which they had the final out at the NHL Awards um, this past month. Uh, and then as well, we've seen a lot of success now working um from an experiential and sport production perspective. And so we've found um you know the tagline that I try and use is, you know, the esports publishers, teams, rights holders, whatever it might be, you know, they understand esports. And We understand esports, too, but we'll never understand their games or their product nearly as much as they will, and we're fine with that. But we have a storied success of um, coming in and working with the biggest sports leagues, teams, in particular here in New York, whether it be NFL, NBA, NHL, and helping them grow and enhance the fan experience. Mm -hmm. And so where we come in and try and work with a number of publishers – is or teams or whatever it might be is let us help you professionalize your esports. Let us help you increase and really grow the fan experience. Um, and so, you know, one group that we've recently kind of started working with and we're really excited about is the work that we'll be doing with the Overwatch League. And so um, we're seeing success there and we're really, you know, looking forward to kind of continuing that traction. To your point earlier, you know, over in Germany we've seen a ton of work done there. Um, That business model has historically been a little bit different, um, just given that our German business predominantly is around sales and marketing rights, Mm -hmm. and we do a ton of work with like the Bundesliga to sell the marketing rights for a number of their teams as well as EPL. Um, So we've seen a lot of success representing teams from, in particular, who are part of the EU LCS, Mm -hmm. um, such as you know H2K or. Splice or whoever might be. And now, but even there, we actually kind of on the brand consulting side, we were very instrumental in helping SAP do their partnership with Team Liquid. Yes. Um, And that, you know, comes, you know, that's a global effort. And so, you know, where Lagadere is really focusing our efforts is really becoming, you know, as esports is truly a global, you know, entertainment option, we are working to. Coordinate across all of our global offices, whether it be Asia, whether it be you know Africa, whether it be uh, Europe, obviously, or North America or South America, to really be that agency to help uh, global teams, global properties, global rights holders take out, carry and do work in esports globally.
0: It'll be very interesting, especially for your European office, to see the EU LCS franchising how that goes. Hopefully, uh the teams you're working with um get a spot, and that'll hopefully bring a lot of work to you as well,
1: yeah, um, and you know I think even for I know with a little bit of what those are guys are doing is also going out and talking to perhaps more of the traditional sports leagues mm-hmm. you know similar to like what the um Cleveland Cavaliers did with creating the, you know, hundred thieves or, you know, a number of the traditional sports properties and how they bought into those franchise spots. Mm -hmm. I know that, you know, given our great relationship with so much of the traditional sports teams in Europe, across Europe, you know, which are traditionally soccer focused or football in the name of the world cup. Um, I know we're having a lot of conversations with a lot of those teams on the process and guiding them through that and how to, uh, potentially invest in or become a part of those franchises.
0: So, you know, kind of as a final, qu- main question is, a lot of our listeners um, are, as we say, non endemic to esports space, they want to know more a lot of them are from traditional sports world. Um, when working with these brands, right, or these sport entities, your clients, What are the biggest misconceptions they have when you come in? Um, Because I think that can be very valuable for our audience.
1: The biggest misconception that I run into, um, and I can share an anecdote from Mm -hmm. our last Esports Rising conference back in 2017, is that the Esports audience or gamers are these bunch of young nerds who live at home. Mm -hmm. And discrediting them is like you know i hear when people say like oh doritos goes and sponsors esports that makes sense or you have mountain dew going and sponsoring esports that makes sense um and then when they see someone like a mercedes-benz coming in or a bmw that SAP? there's this or sap that there's this big disconnect like i don't understand and so um i had a conversation with someone at the last you know lagadair esports rising conference because he was wearing a Breitling backpack. And I was like, that's really interesting. Brightling, like, oh, what do you do for Brightling? It's so interesting to me that you're interested in esports. And he was like, no, I don't work for Brightling. Why would Brightling ever be interested in esports? Which to me was like a little disheartening in in that I was like, I think Brightling, or, and I think the broader point is these kind of high end, you know, not the super high end, not the Rolexes, but kind of the lower high end premium brands are exactly the right brands to be operating in and around esports. To what I mentioned earlier, you have this really educated, you know, really kind of like higher income with expendable income group who are spending the amount, the crazy amounts of money that they're spending on the computers, which I don't think people necessarily understand how much some of these gaming computers cost, Mm -hmm. plus all the money they're spending in-game, plus all the money they're spending on all the different accessories associated. Um, Those things aren't cheap. And so to me, one of the biggest misconceptions and if a brand like a, you know, like a Tag hewer, for example, were to come into the space, I think that, you know, again, with the right doing it the right way. I'm not saying just come in and load a mm-hmm. slap. Um, but to me, these premium brands, there's this big opportunity to get in early with this demographic that will at some point in their lives be buying premium uh items uh, and so to me i'm a little bit baffled that that hasn't started to creep in yet and yeah. there's this big misconception that like well why would esports kids want to go buy a tag cure? and i'm like that's exactly yeah, who's going to be I, buying a tag cure exactly exactly <laughs> and
0: i think it's interesting because colleges do understand this for colleges they use esports particularly for the program's that you that the kids that eventually are going to work at google and the kids that eventually are going to make a lot of money um but the brands aren't understanding it so that's really interesting so thank you for coming on chris if people want to follow you want to follow legardier what's the best way to do that
1: um well first off thank you so much for having me you know i really appreciate you uh coming by and spending the time with me you know can't thank you enough um So how to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Bliven8, or you can find me at Chris E. Bliven. It's a fun little uh, way I've done that. Um, Or you can find me on LinkedIn, pretty active there. Um, And then to follow Lagadere, you know, it's just lagardere-se.com or our brand consulting website, which is lagardere plus ulscom uh, so lagadair-sc.com or lagadairplus.com.
0: You probably best way is just put it in Google, but I'll um, yeah. I'll make sure to put it in the description box if anyone wants to check that out. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you to our audience, and uh, we'll be there again next week.